today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Great news. All 12 boys in the coach have been rescued from the cave in Thailand. What happens now? First, let's get an update from Matt uh, Gutman. He's reporting on the boys, uh, the final boys being rescued today. He has been vilified by many for leading them into that cave that many people thought they would never get out of, but also praised for keeping them alive. All right, and uh, here's another report from Adrian Bankard. They say the boys are happy, laughing, even joking with the Prime Minister of Thailand during his visit on Monday. Is the fact that these boys were so young a factor in them surviving in these conditions? Public health officials tell us their youth and the fact that they were athletes was a benefit. There you have it. Uh, Great news as the world watched. Let's bring in Roger Mortimer. He is Western Region Coordinator, National Cave Rescue Commission, and is with us now. Roger, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here with you. You know, it's amazing. We've talked to a couple of experts like you that are in the uh, occupation of cave rescue or involved in some way. I'm not sure many people even realize there were cave rescuers prior to this story. How big is this? Well, it depends on where you are. I live on the west coast of the United States, where they're really pretty few and far between. On the other hand, in the southeast of the United States, uh, they can be, you know, fairly common. You just have more caves that are closer to population centers. Um, in the in the in the west, they tend to be uh, several mile hikes, which uh, cuts down on the on the amount of visitation. So, uh, your thoughts when you first heard of this situation? What did you think their survival rate would have been? I had a whole lot of concerns um, because it's a long way. Um, flooding situations are some of the worst possible. Um, and there becomes this inevitable urge to send in divers to go do something about it. We, we, we feel a need to do something. And sending divers can be really, really dangerous. It's not uh, an environment that most divers are ready to handle. And the number of, of experienced cave divers is really, really limited. So uh, you risk a lot by sending people in for sometimes really marginal benefit. In this case, they, they needed to find the kids, and eventually their hand was forced to dive these kids out, which in the beginning of it I, I thought was a farcical thought, but they've, they've made it work so far. Uh, and the fact that these these boys and the coach went 10 days without even being discovered, I mean, at what point do you give up hope? I mean, that just seems extraordinary. Well, in this case, they they knew that their bikes were outside. They had a lot of other evidence that this was the place that they were. So this was the place to search. And really, I think they could not give up on that search until they'd gone all the way to the ends and even then, you really wonder, when you're searching, are, one is never 100% sure that you've covered all the territory. You've not looked behind every single rock. So they had to at least go to the end and be sure that they were not in some obvious place. And they, they found them eventually before they got to the end, but kind of close to the end. Would people, would other experienced divers have known these tunnels, known their, their shape and, and their direction and where they were going? Would that have been mapped out in some way? Well, it has or is there just, or is there just too many to do that? Well, that's something that cavers do is to go and and map stuff. It's kind of the modern equivalent of going and writing your name on the wall, which is mm. considered vandalism now. Is if you want to prove you've been there, you you go create a map of the place, and that was done in the 1980s. So people knew what the cave looked like. But it's still from the perspective of somebody walking through it, because most of the year you can walk through it. You might get your feet wet, but you can walk through it and breathe the air the entire time. It's just that this flooded when the monsoon rains hit. And uh, that makes it a totally different experience. Are you surprised that they kept going deeper and deeper into this mountain? But on the other hand, I guess they had no other option. Well, the kids or the explorer? The, the, the kid. The, the, well, the kids that started out. Well, I mean, they were on an adventure, so it just depends on how much adventure you want. Mm. Um, these are a bunch of fit kids that are working together as a team, and probably as a bunch of teenage boys running around were egging each other on about how far that they could go, and they went quite a ways in. So, no, I'm not really surprised at all. The, the cave goes further. They were having a good time. They were enjoying themselves, so they kept exploring. What would life have been like them uh, been like for them for that two week period down there? 
I'm sure it was hell. Uh, they were they were trapped in a a literally life threatening situation. They they were able to find a an an air pocket. Basically, it's a big glorified air pocket that they were in that that could hold all of them. Um, but they had come close to risking their life. They had to realize that. Um, other people were going to have to come look for them, so there's probably a lot of guilt that they were dealing with. Um, they were in the dark. Um, they were eventually starving. Uh, they're wondering whether the water they were drinking was going to give them some kind of dysentery or something that's really going to start polishing them off one by one. Uh, I'm sure it was a terrifying thing. Um, for the coach involved, I'm sure it was even more terrifying. Uh, it's It's unclear at this point whether he led them in or he followed them in to go find them, but um, he, they were kind of on his watch, and something horrible happened. So for him, it was terrible. It sounds like when he was with them that he did a lot of good decisions, that they had a lot of discipline, which mm. kept them safe. Uh, he taught them to meditate, which probably helped a whole lot when they were coming out in, their, in the diving masks. Um, he sacrificed all of his food for them, for what little bits that they had. Um, I, you know, he did a great job once he was there. Hmm. Talk about the darkness and how this would have affected them, specifically with not knowing when sun comes up, goes down, that sort of thing. Right. I would assume, I mean, they would, they would have had to have some lights with them. And once they were in this situation, I would think that they would have rapidly figured out that they needed to conserve those lights. So if they had some, I'm sure that when somebody had to go relieve themselves, they probably didn't want to fall in the water, and that would be a time to go turn on a light. Or if you need to go catch some drip somewhere to drink, you probably needed to use a light. So they probably had some intermittent light, but um, I'm sure that most of the time it was dark, and that was very oppressive. Um, I don't know if they had watches on. Um, if they did, probably they were the type that would have gotten flooded out and were, were non-functional. It sounds like when the British divers showed up, one of their first questions, you know, was, how long have we been here? Uh, the human mind is not really good at keeping track of time without external stimuli. We, we live with sunrises and sunsets. So um, they, for them, time sort of extended. Um, we see other people when they've been in cave situations with no outside stimuli, their, their days start to prolong. It's no longer 24 hours. They become 25, 26 sometimes longer than that. You get like half days and full days that happen, and then eventually it cycles again. You get, you get weird sleep disturbances underground like that. Uh, any idea what the long-term effect might be on these kids? I would be watching all these kids for some kind of PTSD. Yeah. I mean, these kids have gone through a, a, a life-threatening traumatic event. Um, they've been kept underground, basically kept isolated for two weeks of time. Um, they felt that their life was, was in danger, and there was, that's no exaggeration. And now that they're out, they are also going to learn that somebody died trying to find them. And I think right. that, that extra amount of guilt is, is really going to add to whatever psychological burden they're, they're already carrying, which is going to be big. What about being claustrophobic, or would you, even, would you have even gone in if you were? I think if they were seriously claustrophobic, they just would not have gone in. Now, again, it's, it's a team, um, and there's some team psychology that happens there. So if they'd gone in together as a team, they probably would stick together as a team, and they'd probably support the people that were a little bit claustrophobic. A lot of this cave is wide open. And so claustrophobia isn't necessarily a thing, but they did go through the constriction on the way in, you know, not needing to dive at that point. They, they crawled through it, and that's, a, that's about a one-foot-by-two-foot constriction, which is, is not horrible, except if you're diving and you can't have your tanks on while you go through it. Then it's, it's a pretty big challenge, but one-foot-by-two-foot is not that bad going through. Wow. Um, what about the quality of air down there? Well, and that became a deciding factor. We, we have seen that in other rescue situations where you don't get um, a good cycling of air. In a confined space with a lot of people breathing, eventually you start building up carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide basically switches place with an oxygen on, a, on about a one-to-one. -one. So the reports are they were down to about 15% of oxygen, which means they were about uh, 5 to 6% carbon dioxide which is going to have some effects. It can affect their blood chemistry to some extent. It's going to make them 
feel like they're suffocating, like they can't breathe. They're going to breathe very, very fast trying to blow off the CO2, except they're bringing it as much as they're blowing off. Um, I think that's really going to add to the panic situation that they, that if they were, weren't feeling it before, they would probably start feeling it when the CO2 levels got high enough. going to give them a horrendous headache at the same time. Most of the time, caves are very safe from an air point of view. Not, not always. There are exceptions. But in this case, it's just the sheer number of people there led to a, a switch out of all their oxygen. What about recovery uh, over and above the psychological aspect? What about the physical aspect? Some we, We've heard reports that a couple of them may have uh, cave disease, uh, a lung infection of some sort. Where, where could that go? Well, the, the reports coming out are fairly vague, which is appropriate given privacy concerns. Uh, apparently, two of the kids have some sort of pneumonia that's unclear at this point. I would be mostly concerned about them having something called leptospirosis, uh, which you can get from cave water. You know, in lots of parts of the of Southeast Asia, this is an issue, um, but it can happen in in other in other temperate parts of the world too. But um, yeah, so this is something which can get through the skin if there's any kind of abrasion, which is common in a, a tropical caving situation, um, and that's something which could have an onset right about now. So they're probably looking for that, and uh, that's easily treatable if they find it. Are there any long-terms, uh, long-term effects of these illnesses? Can they be treated if they are done quickly? I suspect that whatever infectious disease that they have, they will be able to treat very successfully. If it's, if it's leptospirosis, they'll be able to treat that with, with commonly available drugs that they will have on hand there already. In the hospital, I'm sure that they are dealing with something called a refeeding syndrome. Um, it, it'd be nice to, to give these kids any comfort food that they might want at this point, uh, but that can be dangerous. Um, it, it turns out that feeding someone after that they, they have been starving for a while can change the way that we metabolize um, food sources, and it can really suck out electrolytes from the blood to a, a actually very dangerous um, amount. So it seems cruel that they are giving these kids probably quarter rations, uh, but that's actually the safe thing to do to start with. And that was probably what they tried to do in underground is to give them only very small amounts of food, which I'm sure they were starving at that point, yeah. but that was the right thing to do. Now that they're in the hospital, they can monitor all those electrolytes and replace them if necessary. So it's, it's safer, but it'll take a couple days to really get their digestive systems back, uh, back to normal. Talk about the journey out. Uh, and, you know, the distance is, I'm, I'm, I heard, almost like three miles that they had to travel to get out of this thing. Talk about how treacherous and dangerous this would be. Well, I, I've heard varying reports. Uh, 2.5 miles seems to be the, the common distance cited these days. And uh, it's been taking them, the divers, about five hours to go in and out. Now, uh, that means partly that they're diving and they have to set themselves up and check everything and dive. But then they have to go through the rest of the cave uh, with water flow that makes the footing a little bit abnormal over really, really rough terrain that they're having to, like, climb over things and crawl under things. It's not walking on an asphalt trail. This is yeah. slippery stuff that they can still fall in, that they can still turn an ankle. They need to be really, really careful. So put all those things together with multiple dives and multiple um, climbs and going over really, really rough terrain. It takes a lot of work to get out safely. It's only 2.5 miles, but five hours... Given the circumstances, that sounds actually pretty reasonable. Given that they are now escorting someone who is weak, probably scared, uh, it sounds like they might have sedated these kids to go through the diving portions of it. Um, that's going to be a really kind of dicey call as far as moving these kids. It sounds like some of them they brought out on stretchers once they were able to get them to the, the final air-filled passage. Mm. But underground, they would have had to move under their own power, and these are kids that are basically malnourished at this point. So even though they went in, you know, super fit soccer players, they've been starving for two weeks. Yeah. So they're, they're going to have challenges. What, do we know anything more about the death of the, of the Navy SEAL that passed during this uh, rescue? I have not heard much more. I'm sure that some report will come out at some point, whether it will be made public. I have no idea. 
um, as a, a formal, former SEAL, I'm sure he's very, very well trained in, in diving techniques and how to use gas and equipment. At the same time, the, the cave diving situation is very different, um, and there is just no forgiveness whatsoever. You, you can't just call your dive and go to the surface. Mm-hmm. There's, there's 800 meters of rock above him. So if he runs out of air, that's it. It's over. So that's the most likely explanation is that he ran out of air, um, whether he was following the usual cave diving protocols, I don't know. Um, could he have had some other medical issue? I suppose. Uh, you can speculate all over the place, but um, I think we have to wait for that final report. Roger Mortimer has been with us, Western Region Coordinator, National Cave Rescue Commission. Roger, fascinating. Thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad that I could be here with you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is chaos politically in Britain right now. Uh, We all know uh, that it was a short while ago that they all voted uh, by a very slim uh, margin to get out of the European Union and, of course, uh, force a a Brexit vote. You might also remember Boris Johnson, uh, one of the major politicians behind this, uh, now is one of two members of uh, uh, Theresa May's cabinet to have left. And I guess say, citing that Theresa May has not gone far enough, uh, that uh, it isn't a clean break. Uh, that being said, Brits must be incredibly confused, to say the least, thinking that one of the main players has now abandoned ship, starting the mess and not really finishing or cleaning it up in any way. Let's bring in Kurt Hubner, Institute of European Studies, Department of Political Science, and with us now. Kurt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. Are you surprised we are where, or are you surprised the UK is where it is right now during these negotiations? Not at all. I mean, this was a disaster in making uh, since uh, it was pretty clear the government has no clear-cut plan how to execute uh, Brexit and, even more important, what Brexit means, actually. You know, there was this uh, referendum leaving the European Union, as you mentioned, slight majority in favor, but it was never clear what leaving the European Union actually means. We have all those kind of concepts, uh, customs union, single market, all those kind of things regular voters have no clue about. And uh, it turns out the main players in this Brexit uh, camp also don't have any kind of uh, clue. And so it was a train uh, running against the wall, and now this happened, and uh, all the question marks are there, and we'll see where it goes from here. This It seems very odd in retrospect, but I guess, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, breaking an agreement to create a new one. Did anyone think this would be a cakewalk? Uh, and obviously those ones uh, in favor of Brexit pretended that would be a cakewalk. Uh, you maybe recall all those kind of promises, 450 million British pounds on a weekly uh, base uh, going towards uh, the National Health Service, uh, all the other kind of promises that were made at the time. Uh, this was obviously nonsense. I mean, it was not backed by any kind of serious analysis. There were promises and uh, voters went for it. And now they have to deal with other, I mean, don't talk about any longer about this kind of goodies unless it's a promise we have to uh, to deal with uh, damage uh, control already the uk uh, has lost uh, in economic terms quite a lot uh, we see a depreciation of the british pound from the very beginning after the referendum that a lot has changed in this regard there are all these kind of things that already are in place even before brexit happens so uh, you know uh, it's really a situation uh, for theresa may where she has to think about where to go and whether she has the support to go anywhere because her own cabinet or party is divided. When I think about it, so far, we haven't heard anything from the European Union. Even the checkers plan that has been put on the table on Friday by Theresa May, uh, it, even if this would have been accepted within the Tories, it hasn't, as we know, but even if, it's not clear how the response of the EU would look like. Why was there no plan before going into this? I mean, it just seemed like we're going to get out of this and then we'll try to figure out it as we go. Um, one argument could be, you know, even those ones in favor of Brexit didn't believe that it would win the referendum. So uh, this would be one way to look at it. But then one could also say this would be quite naive. Uh, so uh, 
I think the real problem is that nobody ever thought through in a careful way what Brexit actually could mean. I mean it's a long And is that because is that because people didn't really think it would happen? Is this because this was more a political threat than anything and the politicians didn't realize that the UK would actually vote for this? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, this would be one way to look at it, that uh, nobody was thinking that a referendum would be successful, and now it was, and then how should we operate this whole kind of thing? That's one way. But the other thing is really, it's extremely complicated when, uh, you know, to, to untangle all those kind of various elements, dimensions, uh, being part of the European Union. It's not that you can say, okay, that's it, we leave. It has 1,001 million implications. All those are coming on the table on daily all those negotiations, it turns out uh, it's complicated, it's, it comes with high costs and a high level of uncertainty. And uh, I think so that's the kind of the complexities the politicians are dealing with. And the Brexiteers still pretend it would be simple and uh, very easy. And it turns out it's not. And that's the kind of the delicate situation the government uh, finds itself. Was Boris Johnson the face of Brexit? Uh, definitely, he became a, a face, but also he's always a face in the sense that uh, he's a very uh, the popularity of uh, of him is very high, even though his political skills uh, inflated quite a lot. Even in his job as foreign minister, nobody is really very impressed by, by his really actions. But he has this kind of the language, the way he he uh, plays on this is seen by the by the public with uh, in, in a positive way. It's a colorful person, and in this regard, he was the face of Brexit, but he was not the, not really the leader, not really the spirit. There were others behind that. Uh, how does the UK, how does the UK feel about Boris Johnson stepping down now? Considering some may look at him as the person that started all of this, is this not the captain bailing from the ship before? Yeah, I mean, it's something like this, or Captain is bailing, but then uh, you know, he had all this kind of uh, situation in the past, so he may return. Now he's, he will come from outside, and this may even be a, a much stronger threat for uh, Theresa May. And the, the reason why she called him into the cabinet at all in the beginning was a bit of a surprise, uh, because uh, you know, his, uh, his rating was not very good on her side, but still she announced him and made him so foreign minister, was keeping him inside the government may a bit uh, lessen uh, his threats. Now he comes from outside, and this may be even more dangerous for her, because Brexit, the hard Brexit, is not coming to an end with all those kind of chaos we are currently observing. So this hasn't been decided yet. And I think so we will see a kind of formation of the Brexit camp in the next couple of weeks. And this may even question the leadership and the position of Theresa May herself. So Johnson left because he felt May wasn't being strong enough. He felt that it wasn't a hard Brexit. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you go into negotiations or continue negotiations with the European Union and you already offer like the checker plan from Friday saying, OK, we need this kind of trade agreement with a common rule book. A common rule book is a very technical term, means that uh, UK was still willing uh, to accept uh, the same regulations to accept decisions that are European Court of Justice, all those kind of things where hard practitioners are saying, we don't want this. But Theresa May is saying, this is our starting point. And given the kind of imbalance in negotiation power between the EU and the UK, Johnson anticipated, rightly so I think so, that with this kind of starting position, it will even get worse. And it will be not, never be a Brexit, it will be a kind of soft version, kind of Norway solution, something like this. The UK continues to pay, so no net benefit in this regard. They follow the rules, and the rule, the common rule book also means uh, if they want to do a kind of trade deal, let us say, with Canada, they still have to follow the rules of the European Union. So there's not a lot of uh, freedom, not, not all this kind of independence, everything they were promising will not be fulfilled. Mm. And uh, in this regard, Johnson is right. If you want a hard Brexit, you can't do the checker. Uh, if it is, a, is a light Brexit or a checker better than a hard Brexit? I think so. Both are bad in, in, in different ways. Right. You know, if, if you think about it, a soft Brexit, what it means, 
the UK is no longer sitting in the table. Currently, they still had uh, a lot of influence. You know, their, the world, the power of the UK was counting the European Union. Now they would be outside. They would have to accept all the kind of rules made by others. You know, you weakened your kind of influence in a very uh, decisive way. Right. Then it's only in the treatment. It would be only treatment for agriculture and for goods. Services are making up 80% of the UK economy. The checker plan does not uh, foresee any kind of solution for the service sector, particularly financial industry. One reason why they don't like this kind of strategy. So it's a way to nowhere. What options does Theresa May have moving forward? And that's a good question, but that's more a kind of political question, I think, than any kind of economic strategy behind all that. She needs to uh, to continue. I mean, it, we will see a kind of a division of, uh, of of the Tories, I think, so. I mean, uh, no, she will not be able to get a support from sufficient numbers to move to uh, further to a softer and softer Brexit. This will split the Tories, and this may need, may lead to uh, new elections. That's the way I would look into that. There is no uh, no golden wave out of this situation. So, is it look like the UK is heading for an election then? I would say so. I mean, not 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 before the summer or so, but this is yeah. exactly in the in the fall. What I would expect when it's getting clearer that uh, her chosen pathway will not have the support of uh, not 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 the support of the majority of the industries or the business sector, but also the support of the majority of the parliamentarians. And then we'll see. She needs uh, to play the same game again she did a year ago, where she failed when she was calling for new elections, as we know. And she ended up with a kind of with a huge loss. Right. You know, she has this kind of yeah. uh, coalition government. And, you know, this will you know think about it. the whole Irish question has not been solved at all. Mm. So there will be pressures from all sides, and this will lead to, uh, I'm pretty sure, to a kind of political conciliation. Wow, what a mess. Coming up. It's a total mess. Oh, my goodness. Um, So is there any way to go back? If there is another election, could another candidate come in and say, we're going to put it all back the way it was? Is that even possible at this point? Again, it's a very kind of political question. If if you think about uh, the kind of meaning of a referendum, then it's a kind of, it's not, you know, uh, the outcome of the referendum is not binding. In, in a legal way, but it's binding in a political way. So this would need a discourse mm. in, the, in, in the UK saying, you know, we started all this, it turns out uh, uh, Brexit uh, has, is such a complex thing, we can't go for it. Let's rethink and uh, let's see, uh, let's go back to the, to the starting point and think how can we negotiate with the European Union without leaving some of those uh, critical elements uh, that we were concerned about at the beginning, and this is mainly migration. And if you think about it, the number of European citizens going to the UK has drastically been reduced anyway due to the uncertainty that has been created. So a lot of those elements you know, that were uh, pushing for the Brexit decision are no longer in the picture at all. So, you know, but it would demand a lot of and require a lot of political capital, and I don't think so that Tories have capital. And then it comes to other situations. Labour until now has no clear-cut, let um, uh, us say, analysis and position towards uh, the European Union. They are not totally against leaving. They are not totally in favour of staying. So it's a kind of other division inside Labour, and all this makes the thing even to a larger mess than uh, we thought about uh, two years ago when all this started. How are citizens of the UK viewing this? Are, are they are they looking at this and saying this is just uh, uh, just a, a massive screw up that, that that we should have never gone down this path? Or are there still lots that say we have to keep, put our head down and keep going? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the polls, I mean, there 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 are all kind of polls, as you know, and we shouldn't take them. Uh, we should take them with a grain of salt all right. the time. Uh, there are a few that are saying. A majority now, a slight majority, is now thinking about we should stay, we should, the European Union, we should forget all of those things. There are still a, a strong number, a strong, let us say, a strong minority of Brexiteers in the, in the population, in the, in, in, in the side of the voters, who think, okay, all this is uh, due, the whole, this whole mess has been caused by the European Union, by the way they, they act, their inflexibility, their harsh kind of demands, all those kind of things. So uh, that's still there. And it all tells us, uh, you know, that UK doesn't know exactly where they belong to. 
Mm. It's a other kind of political identity crisis, if you like. Are they belonging to Europe? Very often it's being said, we leave the European Union, not, but not Europe. But in some regard, the government and also parts of the population saying we are still part of the Commonwealth, we are a kind of different nation, mm. and, uh, no, and this has to be uh, marked in the way we deal with the European Union. So it's a kind of split situation, a lot of divisions, and uh, they have even become stronger uh, than they used to be uh, before this whole Brexit thing started. How does the rest of the European Union feel about all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Uh, there is uh, this uh, nice German word, Schadenfreude. You know, they look at it and hmm. think, you know, this is a mess they created by themselves. Uh, that's one way, one, uh, uh, one response. Uh, the other one is pretty much also, uh, you know, this tells us with all those kind of divisions in the European Union, we know there's, they have their own kind of serious and deep problems currently, but uh, it's still a kind of harmonized uh, common front when it comes to Europe, to the UK. And for one main reason, if they would offer some, of, some goodies the Checker plan is asking for, this would mean a lot of those other countries in the European Union, think about Italy and others, they would like to say the same kind of goodies, yeah. and this would lead to a disintegration of the European Union. That's the main reason why mm. they, what, it's not inflexibility, it's really own interest. You know, they have to act in the way they're acting in order to keep their, their whole kind of shop in order. And, uh, so, um, and that's, I think, so the main dominating element and the way to look at it. Where do you think this discussion will be one year from now? <laughs> if I would know, you know, then uh, yeah. I, would t- I would take my small salaries on UBC and get <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, that's really difficult. Things are changing, as I mentioned, from not day from by day, but on a weekly basis. And if uh, what I'm thinking about, if I would be right that we would see new elections in Europe from now, this would definitely lead to a change in government because the Tories would not get this kind of uh, seats any longer. Given the divisions, it's no longer a kind of, you know, a kind of strong, united party. So this would probably lead to a Corbyn-led government. But then, how is Labour acting? You know, given what I mentioned, they have their own kind of divisions and various ways to look at the European Union. So it's all about, I think, so that the UK has to sit back. Maybe if they win the soccer championship that's nothing like a great victory to uh, just change the uh, political landscape and the attitude of the whole country I can tell you you know this would be the best thing that happens for the the UK at all even better than a royal wedding not a wedding (laughs) that's only something for media and for this kind of uh, strong royalist you know still like those pictures and so on but just a of the past, I think so. Kurt Hubner has been with us, Institute of European Studies, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia. Kurt, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. We'll be watching. Fascinating. Thanks so much. Bye now, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about pipeline. We've talked about this uh, a lot on this show, and of course, this in regard to the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, Kinder Morgan, the U.S. company that decided to twin the pipeline from uh, northern Alberta down to Tidewater in British Columbia so they could get their resources uh, to market. We have two NDP governments, uh, one in, um, uh, sorry, one in Alberta. Uh, Rachel Notley, and of course, one in British Columbia, but it's also split and being supported by uh, three members of the Green Party. So it's kind of odd that we have BC and Alberta fighting each other because they're, you know, it's the West. They're they're brothers. Uh, And not only that, we have two NDP governments beating the bejeebers out of each other, and the rest of Canada is paying. So now we're going to see Alberta buy a piece of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Earlier this year, the Prime Minister agreed to buy the pipeline. Now, this was a pipeline that Kinder Morgan was going to pay for, but then because of the the BS and everything centered around these governments in Alberta and British Columbia and protesters and such, uh, at that point, Trans Mountain said, you know, or Kinder Morgan said, we're, we're not going to bother with this. So then they started pulling out, and, of course, the government offered uh, $4.5 billion for them to do what they were going to do anyway with their own money because we couldn't seem to get the dang thing built. 
We were letting minority governments prop each other up and one province stop a whole country. So uh, finally we got to where we are and of course the government and you have now agreed to purchase uh, this pipeline. Where are we now? And was Alberta's idea to buy in on the table right from the very beginning. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Always appreciate oh, it. Here again, Scott. So uh, where is this deal now? At what process are we? <laughs> well, I think the deal still has to be finalized. Uh, I take it that that won't happen until August. So we have another month before the transaction takes place and you and I uh, fork over $4.5 billion to do what the private sector would have done had the federal government uh, stood by its position and uh, basically made it abundantly clear to all uh, foreign uh, in, uh, environmental groups that uh, they would not tolerate uh, the blockages and, of course, uh, simply set aside the uh, the decision uh, to use indirectly the courts, as the B.C. government has done for the reasons you just outlined. Um, and proceed with uh, allow with the proceeding of the building. It's a very dangerous precedent that's been set here. It means that even when the federal government that has authority gives authority, is not prepared to exercise that authority, and that's uh, uh, beyond the legal funnies. It, it's not only costing the Canadian dollar, the, uh, the entire oil industry, and of course, uh, 4.5 billion bucks out of your pocket and mine. Uh, it does set a very dangerous precedent that we are really the global punching bag when it comes to any wanton environmentalist who wants to walk in and uh, stop uh, and do in Canada that which they know they cannot do anywhere else in the world. So what can the Prime Minister and our money do that Kinder Morgan couldn't do? What is going to happen now that's going to get this pipeline built that wasn't being done before? I mean, just the fact that we own it, we can now kick down the door and build it? Yeah, well... I mean, is that really what it comes down to? If it's a private company, they can't do this. But if the government owns it, we can do it. Well, if we can do it, we wouldn't have we would have done it already. I mean, the fact is that we have uh, not proceeded with ensuring that the rule of law, um, you know, uh, it prevails. That we've allowed mob rule to dictate what's going to happen with that pipeline. We're now exposed to four point five billion dollars. Uh, again, unquestionably, uh, loss in other areas dealing with the energy sector, and uh, really predicated on three tiny green seats, provincial green seats. Less than half a federal riding is now calling the shots for the rest of the country. Um, you know, I, I think the Prime Minister is going to need a, a game plan. He's going to have to ex- you know, execute it rather quickly. That is to say, get out there and uh, get it built willy-nilly. And if anybody wants to protest, well, there's the paddy wagon and there are the jails. Throw them in very quickly. I, you know, you can't fool around with this kind of stuff because... I think we've uh, we've played footsie and cutesy with uh, with a, a group that is obviously committed, has uh, you know a sense of uh, seeing blood. Uh, they they sense that this is weakness on behalf of the federal government, and it's this dithering I think that is uh, most disturbing about all of this. We now know that the federal government has made that commitment two months ago. I suspect that they will own the uh, pipeline within the next several weeks. Once that happens, uh, what's next? Shouldn't the building begin? And I'm not holding my breath because I don't think the uh, this particular government has the uh, the gumption uh, to proceed. Uh, it doesn't have seem to have a problem with uh, throwing 4.5 billion dollars of money out there again to do what the private sector was prepared to do. Uh, and I, I I doubt very much that we will see any building anytime soon. Uh, Rachel Notley, uh, doing the rounds at Stampede, said that, uh, out in Calgary, said that, you know, uh, stuff has already started to appear on sites and that we could be digging by August. Well, that would be uh, impressive, uh, because if it doesn't happen, uh, then, of course, all of that would be for naught. She has to make, uh, it, if she's going to make an investment here, uh, she's going to have to make sure the investment is, uh, is, is solid, and it's one that will see the building, because... We're probably a year and a half away uh, or out from where we ought to be. Uh, this pipeline has now been delayed a full year and a half, two years with wrangling. You realize that by uh, early 2019, this pipe was supposed to be up and operational. Uh, it's not, and it's going to take another two years uh, and some serious showdowns. Uh, the question is, does either government have the courage, uh, the wherewithal, uh, because they certainly have the public support to proceed with this. Um, they have the legal support to proceed with this. The question is whether they will do it. It's nice to say that we'll have spades in the ground, you know, a little bit of work here, a little bit of work there. 
but as we've seen, we've got uh, you know, we've got some that are prepared to dangle from little bridges and uh, you know stand in front of bulldozers and go into right of ways. Uh, this is going to continue, and the federal government has to be absolutely clear that it will we will tolerate no uh, obstruction. If anybody gets in the way, they will simply be let off and uh, and confined or, or put in a place where they can't be. Uh, where they can't molest or the uh, or stop or withhold or hold back construction, but it's uh, it's likely that uh, uh, up to this point, uh, very little has been said. I'd be very surprised to see the federal government getting on in August. I hope uh, the premier is right, but I have a feeling that uh, precedence is very much uh, weighing against that assumption. Uh, Four and a half billion dollars. Why is Alberta putting in two billion if the prime minister's already given four and a half? Or was that part of the deal? And are they going to pay half? I don't this? know. Yeah, equity position. You buy buy yourself a pipeline. Uh, I don't think it changes, you know, the dynamics on either side. It may make Alberta that much more committed to it. Um, the fact is that uh, is this politics? Do you think this is politics on her well, part? There's an election. There's an yeah. election for Ms. Notley uh, less than a year away, and. Uh, if uh, any, if there's any indication, uh, her government will will be soundly defeated. Um, so this may be, uh, you know, sort of a hail mary pass um, to try to uh, turn things around. But the reality here is that the damage is done. Uh, the uh, the fact is that this won't proceed as anybody wants to, because of course we have allowed ourselves to paint ourselves into a corner in and to permit a handful of miscreants to uh, to do what uh, they can only do in Canada and don't seem to have much uh, solid uh, performance in other regions. I, I point out, for instance, the North Dakota Access Pipeline, which was heavily protested on the Obama government. Uh, once Trump came in, uh, uh, he made it very clear that uh, there would be no tolerance of any nonsense. And uh, he brought in the, uh, the reserves, the armed forces. He brought in uh, who, who he had needed to bring in to push back the protesters and uh, get the peace built. It was built in a very short period of time. So I think it really has to be something the Prime Minister is going to have to make very clear, that he's prepared to use every means at his, at his disposal to see that that pipeline is built. Uh, protests uh, have a place in this country. Uh, there's an outcome for those protests. That's called uh, the rule of law and democracy. And uh, clearly that may be an approach that those out there with three seats would like to consider you know, knowing, of course, that they don't have the support, the grand support of the entire nation. And the decision's been made. It's up to the federal government now to ensure that uh, people live up to the decision that's made honorably and uh, correctly. Was Kinder Morgan bailing out of this because of provincial delay or protest, or are they bailing out? Did they see light at the end of the tunnel because they knew the politics involved here and because they really deep down believe there isn't a lot of money to be made off this pipeline? The ship has sailed. There's cheaper oil elsewhere. There's other investments elsewhere. We don't need this. It's not worth it. Well, heavy oil is uh, very much a valued product. Look today at the price of oil holding at $73 a barrel. So is it, I guess my point that I'm making here, Dan, is yeah. like at the end of the day, businesses operate on money. If the money's there, they'll go ahead and do it. So is, well, the, is yeah. the protest a bit of a, a red herring here that, you know, they don't care about protests. They just get the dang thing built and like you said, arrest everybody on site. Or are they just <laughs> using this as an excuse? Like, you know what? This isn't as sweet a deal as we thought. This is a great opportunity to bail. I uh, know. They paid, they played by the rules. Uh, Canada and uh, miscreants didn't. And so... The federal government uh, and other governments seem to be playing footsie with this group uh, or these individuals, and uh, it's under that circumstance, that level of uncertainty. Why would you want to risk any money when you've gone the full distance? So you've walked the plank. You've gone. You've dotted the I's. You've crossed the T's. You spent two years in deliberation. You've got the support of government, and not just a government, of all governments and, and spokespersons and, uh, you know, uh, uh, those involved directly, uh, the, the, the many of the, the uh, indigenous nations along the pipeline, uh, all of them have pretty much signed on board without exception. So you've really gone the distance only to have your federal government then hum and haw and naysay and navel gaze and wait for something else to happen. No, at the end of the day, you're better to take your money, you know, build a couple of pipelines in the United States, do it in half the time, uh, and ensure that uh, your position, you're not risking uh, the money of, of investors. And that happens to be pension funds. It happens to be all myriad of uh, organizations. It's interesting to find out that uh, Kinder Morgan Canada was uh, heavily invested by, among other things, the pensions that BC MLAs received. So it's not like we're talking about money of big fat cats driving around in nice brand new Teslas. No, we're talking about money 
from shareholders that comes from every facet of, 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 of the economy. And you're not going to risk that with stupidity and, uh, you know, uh, a, a decision that it's okay to dither in Canada because we want to have some kind of social license. I mean, the fact is you can't appease green environmentalists, certainly not those that are opposing this. So the point is you either, you know, fish or cut bait. The federal government's decision to, to dither put Kinder uh, Morgan in no, no, no better position than to say, look, we have to either bail, cut our losses and move on. And if you guys think it's such a great idea, then by all means, do it. Can they dither? Can they dither now that they own it? I mean, will yeah, the dithering now stop? I mean, because now it's costing us money, and it ain't, it's not getting built. Well, I don't think it's going to go ahead. My my sense is that uh, they're going to this thing's going to get kicked around for several months. The BC government will continue to find legal maneuvering to hold this up in the courts as long as they can. And what about the four and a half billion? Gone? It. Is it gone? Yeah. Well, like everything else. You, you know, this is a government that said it would not run deficits after a period of time. So I don't think, uh, I don't think, it, look, politically, they don't want to proceed with this because there's no win for them. They're not going to win Alberta votes and they're not going to win Vancouver votes. They've lost yeah. both of those. So, yeah. you know, from that perspective, I think uh, the deal is done. Uh, you know, for the, the saving face move for the sake of our regulatory legitimacy uh, would be to have the federal government recognize that it made a huge error on destroying Energy East, uh, that getting Line 5 approved is a small, uh, con- you know, conciliatory move that uh, would have been done anyways, that uh, let's hope Keystone gets built. But frankly, uh, we're really down to the final strokes here. Either Trudeau gets off uh, uh, his duff and does the right thing and get this thing going for the sake of Canada, or he continues to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to serve the interests of a community, uh, of a community that is both small in numbers and, uh, and not looking at Canada's long-term interests. But that being said, Dan, you know, Trudeau's only been in for a couple of years. Harper was in for a while. Why couldn't he get these pipelines built? Why couldn't he get Energy East built? I don't think Energy East was at that point where it was, was to, to be approved. This Energy East was proceeding. It only ran into trouble when it wound up in Montreal. And the same group of individuals decided to violently overturn tables, threaten the, the members, the board members, and then the government decided to throw in all sorts of new reasons why uh, if uh, the company TransCanada was going to proceed with building a pipeline, uh, they would have to meet object, uh, objectives that no other country would saddle its own industry with. And so, no, uh, Mr. Trudeau has had plenty of time. It's 2018. He was elected in 2015. Uh, there's no doubt that these two pipelines were very close to uh, being, uh, being approved. Uh, he said no to Northern Gateway. He changed the methodologies uh, halfway through for uh, for approval for the half-built Energy East, uh, and of course approved the one pipeline that he simply can't. If you can't stand by the very minimal thing you put forward, then you know your word means nothing, and it shows a, a, a distinct lack of sound leadership and serious leadership. And I think on this case, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I pull no punches. I think it's unfortunate. It's hurt the country. It's hurt our reputation, and uh, there's no one to blame except the prime minister himself. What about, you talked about the health of uh, the Rachel Notley government in Alberta, of course, uh, under PC uh, governance for a long period of time, 40 some odd years, and then eventually, which just amazed me, having lived in Alberta for three years, that all of a sudden went extreme left to, um, uh, to the NDP. Uh, what about the health of the BC government? How is this playing for the average BCer? Well, I think most BCers are in favor of the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think the vast majority do want this thing to proceed, no matter what. And uh, uh, there is, of course, a very then why do we have a then why do we have a government voted in that's killing it? I mean, if the majority of BCers <laughs> feel that way, feel that way, how did we end up here? And does that mean that their time is limited? Well, their time could be limited by the fact that once Mister uh, Weaver decides that he doesn't want to be part of this anymore, uh, he will face the music, as will Mister Horgan, the premier. Um, I mean, this is a guy who increased gas taxes by three cents a liter in, on people in Victoria and then had the nerve last week to come out and say, uh, you know, the increase we're seeing at the pumps is uh, the result of gouging and nothing to do with oil, which had gone up $9 a barrel. No, these guys are, uh, are, are quite cute, but too cute by half because of the information they're providing is very selective. Uh, I suspect that if Mr. Horgan had a, a majority mandate, we might have had a different outcome. Um, but being as it may, the people of, deci- of B.C. decided to... Uh, you know, to have a, a really a hung parliament or a hung legislature, 
it's in that environment that uh, you have the tick in the tail wagging the dog. So when is the next election in BC? Would we know? Do we know? No, no. It's. Uh, I mean, they have a uh, they have a set time uh, yeah. when they can go to the polls up to five years, um, but that could be any time once the confidence of the house changes and the governor, uh, the left-handed governor, decides not to uh, approve or uh, proceed allow the existing government to continue, um, uh, unless they call on the liberals to form a government, I, which I think highly unlikely. It looks like you'll be back to another election within a year. I think both. Alberta and B.C. are likely to have an election uh, sometime in 2019, as will the federal government. So we'll see where this leads. In the meantime, just consider another year lost to political wrangling. When will we know more on this pipeline? Will we know more by August? Well, I think we'll know who owns it and what that uh, ownership looks like. It's, again, it's federal and provincial governments perhaps owning it. At the end of the day, though, we're no sooner, no closer to uh, you know the building uh, in sections of the, of the of the line. So I think we're still a long way off. Uh, you, you know, you can move a little bit of gravel here and there, but that doesn't constitute the real building and the, the clock ticking. These things take about two years to build. Uh, we waste another year. You know, this thing won't be built to 2021, and we will again continue to miss a golden opportunity. Imagine if we could get you know $74 a barrel for our oil at a time when the uh, Suncor Syncrude project has been offline now for a couple of weeks. We'll stay offline in part the next couple of months. Uh, we would be able to take advantage of what amounts to three billion, three million barrels a day with an additional thirty dollars added to it. Uh, that's nine million times three hundred sixty-five days a year. You're now talking about a two hundred million dollar, you know, boost uh, to the Canadian. Sorry, a two billion dollar econ- uh, boost to the Canadian mm. economy annually. Uh, that buys a lot of jobs. It pays for a lot of pensions. That pays for a lot of hospital beds. But uh, again, I guess you have some people in this country committed to navel gazing and not doing the math. Um, but I, I suspect that those days may be coming to an end as well as people recognize that a dollar thirty-one to buy one U.S. dollar when oil is as high as it is is just another nail in the coffin of the Canadian economy, which I think most Canadians are getting a little fed up with. How long can the prime minister play this game, purchasing a pipeline, then delaying it? Well, I think he's got till the end of August. If uh, there's no movement by then, uh, the question will be, uh, you know, is this really an attempt to not only appease uh, the minority uh, out there who are trying to vandalize the Canadian energy sector, uh, is it uh, a waste of taxpayers' money at the same time? Uh, is your real intention here to rag the puck until the next federal election, at which point I'm pretty confident there will be a new government in Canada? Hmm. Unbelievable. Dan McTagg's been with his former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com, and you're convinced this thing ain't going to get built? Like, really? Well, I don't see it uh, moving ahead, and I don't see any indication how the government's going to do it unless it's prepared to bring in the army and the uh, the net. The, uh, but the how do you think the Canadian pub- how do you think the Canadian public's going to react when it's like we just paid four and a half million dollars for something that isn't done? Well, the point will be uh, the, the optics of having people removed in handcuffs yeah. uh, in droves. I mean, it. that's going to be the concern that uh, mm. that it will uh, you know from a media perspective, the media some on one side saying it's a great thing, and others will say it's a terrible thing. It's, so it's a win for Canada, but it's a loss for the Liberals. It's basically what it comes down to. Well, I think it's going to be a loss either way for the Liberals. Uh, you know, having waited for this as long as they did and then having no option but to come in and buy it for four and a half billion bucks, uh, I think is a demonstration of the fact that, you know, you're, you're playing fast and loose with the public purse. And that, uh, that's something that normally doesn't go down well with most hardworking Canadians. Dan McTagg, GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here. Thanks again, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.